Good morning to everyone here this morning. My name is Scott Gilliland. I am one of the associate pastors here at Lover's Lane. Uh, Our senior pastor, Stan Copeland, is on vacation right now. We join him and his family in prayers of celebration as they prepare to have Stan's daughter, Emily, get married to Jonathan Bryant, JB, who was on our staff for a season here at Lover's Lane. He now works at First Richardson. They're going to be getting married on Saturday. And so prayers for Stan and Tammy and for the whole Copeland family, and especially for Emily and JB as they not only experience a wedding ceremony, but what I'm sure will be a fruitful, long marriage. We are in a spirit of celebration with them this morning. So that means you're with me. Don't sound so excited. Where's my, where's my, where's my applause? There we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I do this for. Um, I'm excited to be with you. I was here last week. I'll be here this week. Excited to be here next week as well. Um, Today we're going to continue talking about evangelism. If you've not been with us, if this is your first Sunday with us here, uh, we've been in a sermon series called Then and Now, where for the first three weeks we talked about the stories that have defined who we are as Lover's Lane for the past 70 plus years and the stories that define who we are today as a community of faith. And then beginning last week, we made a shift and we began to talk about evangelism. How do we take this message of loving all, as our cool blue shirts say, how do we take this message out into a community, out into our neighborhoods and into our lives outside of church so that people who need to hear that they are loved by a God who deeply loves them can hear that message? One of my favorite classes in seminary was Old Testament, taught by Dr. Roy Heller, who on the first day of class said something profound that has stayed with me ever since. He said, familiarity does not breed understanding. Familiarity does not breed understanding. As I study scripture, especially those texts that I feel I know fairly well, I am reminded by his voice in my head to check my expectations and assumptions at the door and to allow the text to be read and to read me again like it's the very first time. Jonah is one of those texts for me. I imagine most, if not all of us, have heard the story of Jonah, at least a version of it, whether that was as a child in our early days of Sunday school or as an adult in Bible studies or through sermons. Jonah is a story that is deceptively simple on its surface, the tale of a runaway prophet swallowed and regurgitated by a giant fish. And yet if we take his story seriously, Jonah, if we put ourselves In his story, we might walk away deeply impacted and aware of our own shortcomings and God's unrelenting grace. Today, we will continue our study on evangelism. Last week, I did my best to answer why evangelism is important for the life of a Christ follower. And this week, I'd like to talk about why evangelism and living as a witness to our faith in Christ proves difficult for most of us. 
Speaking of familiarity, I imagine the part of the story we know the best is that whole episode with the giant fish, yes? It's the one part of the story that we're not going to talk about much today. For the unfamiliar, Jonah begins with God calling Jonah to go and preach to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh was this giant ancient city of the Assyrians. And in fact, for about 50 years, around the year 600 BC, Nineveh was thought to be the largest city in the world. But for the Israelites, the people of Jonah, Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire would not have inspired awe, but rather fear and loathing. The Assyrians were a hated enemy of the Israelites, and so naturally, Jonah is, shall we say, less than pleased when God calls him to preach to his hated enemies. You may know what happens next. He flees for a town called Tarshish, and while on the ship at sea, a storm takes hold and frightens the crew who throw Jonah overboard in an attempt to appease this unhappy Hebrew God. Once Jonah is overboard, God summons a giant fish to swallow him whole. It's actually in the belly of this fish that we witness Jonah's faith proclaimed. If you've never read Jonah chapter 2, I encourage you to sometime this week. It is a beautiful chapter. It reads like a psalm. It's a psalm that Jonah sings to God, referencing many of the great psalms in our Bibles and what the storyteller is trying to make clear in Jonah chapter 2 is this. Jonah's failures as a prophet have nothing to do with his lack of faith in God. Jonah's failures as a prophet have nothing to do with his lack of faith in God. Jonah clearly has tremendous faith, trusting that even in the belly of a fish at the bottom of the ocean... God's presence is with him, and deliverance will be his eventually. And so the fish spits him out, or quite literally in the Hebrew, it vomits him up. It's a messy scene. And this time, Jonah is reluctantly ready to go and do as God has asked him. This is where Jonah's story normally ends in Sunday school. I mean, who cares whenever the fish is gone, right? I know I didn't when I was a kid. Fish is out, I'm out. It's where my knowledge of his story stopped for many years. And it's where our story of Jonah begins this morning. Because it's the rest of Jonah's story, chapters 3 and 4, that will help us understand who we are today. I'll be reading selections from chapters 3 and 4 this morning if you want to follow along. Beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, we read this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out, and he went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, it says, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk. And he cried out, 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Let's stop here for now. 
On the surface, it looks like Jonah is reluctantly following through with God's call. But if we look closer, we'll realize that Jonah is, in all truth, not a very good prophet. (laughs) When we read the great prophets of the Old Testament, prophets like Jeremiah or Isaiah or Amos or Obadiah, we'll find a similar pattern begin to emerge. Prophets tend to do four things. First, they name the sin of the people, whether that's disobedience or not caring for the widow or orphan. And then they warn the people what will happen if they don't change their ways. And then they call the people to repent. And lastly, they give them a vision of what the future could look like if they're more faithful to God. Jonah is a bad prophet. He doesn't name their sin, he doesn't call for repentance, and he doesn't give a vision of a better life with God. All he does is warn them of the impending destruction. In 40 days more, Nineveh shall be overthrown. Not exactly a home run for old Jonah. So what could we really expect of the people of Nineveh? They've not been given any hope or any idea of how to move forward. They've only been told that God is mad and they are doomed. Here's what comes next. And the people of Nineveh believed God, it says. They proclaimed a fast and everyone, great and small, put on a sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne and removed his robe. He covered himself in a sackcloth and sat in ashes. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. No human being or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, they shall not drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth. That means your dogs and kitties too. And they shall cry mightily to God. And shall turn, and all shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows, the king says. God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. I think the king makes a pretty good prophet, don't you? Against all odds, without any help from their supposed prophet, Jonah, the people of Nineveh, from the king to the cattle, all begin to repent and come to faith in God in the traditional Jewish style, sackcloths and ashes and everything. No one told them to do that. Despite Jonah's best efforts to sabotage God's message, the people of Nineveh hear God loud and clear. In his message and the people's response, Jonah is exposed as an imperfect, even downright broken prophet. Last week I mentioned that one reason I think people today do not evangelize, especially people in my generation, is that it honestly makes us uncomfortable to talk about our faith publicly. After my sermon in the 930 service, a member of our church came up to me and said, I think there's another reason people don't evangelize that might be even more of a factor, she said. She went on to say, I think a lot of people don't evangelize and don't go public with their faith because they're afraid that they'll be held to a higher standard or they'll be judged. And I think she's right. I think it's something we need to take head on if we're going to evangelize as best as possible. 
Right now we're doing this push for evangelism as a church. We've got these blue t-shirts. We've got magnets to put on the back of our cars. We've got signs to put in our yards if you really want to push that brand loyalty, right? And all of them reference this mission statement of loving all people into relationship with Jesus Christ. And as I spoke to this member last week, she said maybe some people are concerned that if they put the magnet on their car or the yard sign in their yard or if they wear the shirt out and about in public, people will judge them by the standard of a perfect Christian and that's not what they want. So here's a little bit of good news for us this week. God doesn't want us to be perfect witnesses. God simply, simply asks us to be willing witnesses. I've got the magnet on my car and the yard sign in my yard, and let me tell you, my car is filthy and desperately in need of a wash. And I only mow my yard once every other week, so it's looking pretty ragged right now too. But maybe people outside the church need to see more dirty cars and messy yards proclaiming the love of Christ. My daughter, Andy, is 18 months old, and she's already learning quite a bit. One thing she's learned recently is how to pose for the camera. <laughs> I'm in trouble. She loves the flash on our camera phones. You know, they're, they're crazy bright. She loves it. She could be in the middle of an absolute toddler meltdown, but if she sees the flash of a camera phone, even out of the corner of her eye, all of a sudden she'll whip her head around and the tears will disappear and a big grin will come across her face and she'll say, cheese. The problem we run into in Christianity, I think, is that when we enter the spotlight of public view, when the camera phone flash comes on in our lives, we try to project this perfect image, this idea that we have it all together, that life is always amazing. But if we try to sell people that image outside of the faith, if people outside the faith see us projecting this image of the perfect kind of Christian, they will sniff us out for the hypocrites that we are. Ironically, I think that by getting outside the church and witnessing to God's love exactly as we are, messy cars and messy yards, I think we actually do the gospel of Jesus Christ a great service by making clear that this is a faith for people who are ready to keep it real. Jonah's story reminds me here that I don't need to be a perfect witness or evangelist for God to use me. I don't need to have all the right answers. I don't need to have the perfect story or the perfect response to every person that I meet. In fact, I can royally screw up my witness like Jonah does. I can make a mess of the evangelistic moment and God can redeem it for his glory. In this way, I think evangelism is a necessary reminder for the Christian disciple that in our witness and in our living, God doesn't ask for us to be perfect. He simply asks for us to be willing. So as we continue in Jonah's story, we've just seen something incredible, yes? Against all odds, the people of Nineveh have repented fully and placed themselves at the mercy of God. And as we might expect, because we know who God is. This is what happens next. When God saw what they did, it says in verse 10, how they turned from their evil ways, 
God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Hallelujah! Am I right? Hallelujah! Praise be to God, the people of Nineveh are faithful and saved by the grace of God. Hallelujah! Surely Jonah will be ecstatic, right? Let's keep reading in chapter 1, verse or chapter 4, verse 1. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he was angry. Really, Jonah? He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord! He gets a little dramatic here. Is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, ready to relent from punishing. And now, O Lord, please just take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. He's like a teenager. He's like a toddler. He's being melodramatic. Jonah, pull yourself together, Jonah. The biggest city in the world has been turned to faith in God and has been saved from impending destruction and you're mad about it. I think here Jonah admits to God and to us what it was that made him flee in the very beginning. He says he wasn't scared of the Ninevites. He was scared of God. He was scared of the reality that God was merciful and God would be quick to forgive these people that Jonah had spent a lifetime hating. And it might be easy for us to chide Jonah in this moment or to laugh at him as he gets dramatic in front of God. But place yourself in Jonah's shoes in that moment. And I want you to look at the city of Nineveh for yourself. Who sits in Nineveh for you? When you look at Nineveh, who do you see? Who is it in your life who you regard with anger and hatred? And the last thing that you want to see is God's mercy and grace raining on them. Is it so hard to understand Jonah's reaction? Is this not all of our reactions at times in our lives? I think another reason we run from our witness is honestly we're afraid that God is exactly as merciful and grace-filled and loving as we know him to be. And the last thing that we want for our enemies is that they could know a God like that. Have you ever been there before? <laughs> I know that I have. And so we begin to do what Jonah tried to do. We do our best to withhold the mercy and love of God from people we, we honestly cannot stand. We don't treat them with loving kindness. We don't share with them the hope and joy that we have in Christ. We simply write them off the same way Jonah writes off the people of Nineveh. The problem with that is no matter how much we might try to keep God's mercy and love at bay, if God wants mercy and love in the lives of one of his children, there's nothing we can do to stop it. Jonah tries desperately to sabotage God's mission in Nineveh. He runs away. He boards a ship. He ends up in the belly of a fish. He withholds grace and truth. And still, all the same, God's love prevails and the Ninevites' hearts are turned. The only person who is rejecting the mercy and love of God in this story is Jonah. 
Instead of punishing the Ninevites as he intends, Jonah only punishes himself. Have you ever been in a place like Jonah? Have you ever screamed at God as you watched grace fall upon people you thought undeserving? Have you ever withheld love of God from people you just plain don't like, thinking that you, you, could control the flow of God's mercy? When I put myself in Jonah's place and I consider who Nineveh is in my life, I'm reminded of a simple truth that I forget all too often. If I try to withhold God's mercy and love, the only one who loses is me. If I try to withhold God's mercy and love, the only one who loses is me. As this chapter and book come to a close, we'll find that the Ninevites are not the only ones who need to repent. Continuing in chapter 4, verse 4, God's not done with Jonah quite yet. He says, is it right for you to be this angry? And then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade waiting to see what would become of the city. He's holding on to hope that doom and gloom is still possible. The Lord God, it says, appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah, it says, he was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And Jonah said, yes, angry enough to die. You don't understand me, God. Then the Lord said, you're concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and it perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, God says, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals. It's easy for us to imagine that evangelism is the practice of us going out into the world and changing their hearts for the name of Jesus Christ. But I'm not sure that's what the best evangelism really looks like. Of course, when we witness to our faith, we ought to hope that people might be inspired to seek a relationship with God as well. But I also hope that our hearts could be changed and challenged and emboldened and transformed through the practice of evangelism. What we will find, I think, is this. True evangelism will change the evangelized and the evangelist. When I was a teenager and learning to be in relationship with Christ on a deeper level, I was also hurt deeply by someone who I learned to hate with a hatred just like Jonah. I began to view other people through this lens of hatred, and anyone who reminded me of the person who hurt me was worth hating as well. 
And before long, I would prejudge entire groups of people in my life and hold them at arm's length, maybe to protect myself or maybe in an effort to withhold mercy and love like Jonah looking at Nineveh. But as I began to fall in love with Christ, I had a moment not unlike Jonah. I was watching a video featuring the popular Christian preacher Rob Bell. We watched a lot of his videos in youth group. He had cool glasses and bleached hair. We thought he was neat. I was watching a video featuring, a, or, 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 he was talking about this time that he and his son were at the beach. His son's walking along the beach and picking up these little shells, as kids tend to do. And he picks up one and another until he's got, his hands are mostly full. And he watches his son come across this big, beautiful shell much larger than any he'd gathered as of yet. So big, in fact, that he wasn't going to be able to pick it up. And he watches his son as the gears are turning in his head. And his son knows he has a choice to make. And he puts down all of the little shells and he runs over to grab the big one. And a huge smile comes across his face and he runs up to his dad, ready to show him what he's found. In that moment, watching that video, I remember God speaking to me and saying, Scott, if you want to follow me, if you want to claim this love that I have for you, I need you to let go of your hatred, and I need you to learn how to love these people that you so desperately want to hate. I had to free myself of that hatred. I had to ask God to help me free myself of that hatred that I was holding on to so that instead I could seize the love that I knew God had for my life and the lives of others. And that was a hard experience for a teenage boy. That was a lot to process, but it was an important one. Because I realized in that moment that I could not claim to follow Christ and also hate people who God viewed as beloved children. It just wasn't possible, as hard as it was for me to swallow. I don't think the book of Jonah is really about the redemption of Nineveh. I think the book of Jonah is about the redemption of Jonah. I don't think it's a book about the Ninevites learning to love God. I think it's a book about Jonah learning to love the Ninevites, learning to see them as God sees them, as children in need of a Savior. And maybe this shift, this heart transformation, maybe that's what evangelism really is about for us. And maybe it's also what keeps us, from running, or keeps us running from our witness most of all. Maybe we are afraid that taking God's love out into a world that needs it might actually leave us the ones who are changed. There's power in this moment, though. There's power in this moment when God sees Jonah so spitting mad at these people and their salvation. And God reminds him that where Jonah sees evil monsters who have been his enemy for generation, God sees 120,000 of his children who are learning to be faithful for the very first time. And this moment teaches me many things. But today what resonates the most is that I cannot evangelize someone and hate them at the same time. I cannot proclaim to take Christ into the world and hate the world at the same time. If I want to be a witness and a testifier to God's love in this world, I am going to have to sacrifice my hatred on the altar. 
And that leads me to difficult questions. Can I see the Ninevites in my life the way that God sees them? Would I be willing to share God's love with them? Or would I rather die in the belly of a fish? This week, as we consider what it means to be witnesses, I wonder if we could be attuned to when God calls us exactly to Nineveh, whatever that looks like in our life. I promise that we won't get it perfect. In fact, we might run tirelessly from it or make a great big mess of it all. But God's grace is strong enough to win the hearts of this world, even with imperfect prophets. And while we think it's everyone else who needs the saving, we might just find that it's our hearts that are redeemed and transformed in the end. Amen.